One, two, one, two, one, two. Microphone on. Camera on. There we go. Hello, everybody. And welcome to Politics, Culture and Some Other Shit. Here on in the on the 11th of July in Lurgan, where the Orange Order are holding their annual thing. <laughs> Parade. Yeah. So we'll talk a little bit about the Orange Order. We're going to go into the history of it, why it was formed. Basically, I'm not a fan. I'm sure you know that. Um, they were formed in hate, and they continue to live in hate. Now, that's not to say that everybody that's in it, or everybody that protects in the festivities, is motivated by hate. I don't believe that. Um, but... I do think that the, orga- the organization in its bones is one of sectarianism and of division. And we know that, we, you know, it's it's documented. So I'm, I'm going to read you some stuff. So we, we know that anyway. I don't think that's, that's, I think that's beyond dispute. But they still exist in the north of Ireland today and they have a prominent role in society, less and less so as time goes on, thank God. Um, but it's my it's my uh, proposition that as the orange has moved more and more to the fringes of our society, the better it is for our society. And I think it's important to keep them pinned there. Um, I think they're, I, I do genuinely think they're a monstrous, dangerous organisation. Um, anybody from my side of the community, and I don't like saying that, wouldn't have any. Um, I don't think there's too many of us would disagree with that. Uh, that's you know, and then I do have friends and even sort of relatives out in the wider my wider family who grew up in the orange. As a, as a either as female, well, I don't think women women can't join the Orange Order as such, but there is a female version of it, and there's a support network where women are obviously involved, and things like that. And they, when they see what goes on at these more contentious parades and and, and the more sectarian ones and the ones that would be obviously contentious and things like that. They don't recognise that. That's not what they grew up with. They grew up. They, they would. They would have the. They would go to their church services. They would have the parade, do their bonfires, etc., etc. And there would be no. There would be no. Um, there, there would be nothing controversial about them. For those people, tend to be in the countryside and the farther in, in you know outside the bigger towns and cities. But. That still doesn't get around the fact what the Orange Order is. The Orange Order is born of sectarianism, as I've said already. Sectarianism is in its bones. It was, over the course of its history, it's been mobilised various times by English politicians and the English establishment to create division, to create... um, to sow a lack of solidarity between the Irish working class, Protestants and Catholics. It's been done various times. It was done in, after the, the Irish uh, 
brotherhood, rebellions, Irish Republican brotherhoods back in the 1790s. It was done then. And it was done again by Randolph Churchill, who famously said we'd play the orange card and hope to God that that's going to be enough. Randolph Churchill, the father of Winston Churchill, who was activating a sectarian hate group who were considered very much so a lower caste. Certainly to the likes of Lord Randolph Churchill. They were being used, and they were willingly, willingly doing this. I don't know if they knew they were being used, but they certainly did it willingly. And it was in order to help oppose land reforms and help oppose home rule in Ireland, which the Liberal government of the time in England, led by Gladstone, was was, um, leaning more and more towards... So Randolph Churchill was actually protecting his own land rights in Ireland and activating the Orange Order in order to do it. But that's history, and we'll get to that. But we'll do some... So, we'll get to this bit. Oh. Uh, Right. The history... Of the orange. Oh, I haven't got the right. Oh, that's the other thing as well. So we're going to talk about the brick, the new BRICS currency. You might have seen a flash up on the screen there. You might have seen a... Um, we're going to talk about the new BRICS currency as well. So we're not just going to talk about the orange order, right? We're going to talk about the BRICS currency too. Uh, if you don't know what that is, I'll, ex- I'll explain it to you shortly. Um, a threat to the dollar hegemon. If you listen to this podcast, you probably heard me mention it more than once because it is deeply fascinating to me. It's a game changer. So we'll talk about that after this. We're going to talk about this first. Um, so the Orange, the annual 12th parade is gets held in different towns over in, in the north of Ireland every year, 12th of July, 11th night. No, uh, they have the, 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 we'll have the bonfires and the parades and all that. And to this year it's being held in Lurgan which is where I live, and uh, I wish they would fuck off because I just don't like them at all. So, what is the Orange Order? Let's have a look. Here's the history, according to the Wikipedia. So, the Loyal Orange Institution, commonly known as the Orange Order, is an international Protestant fraternal order. So you have to be male, you have to be a Protestant. Based in Northern Ireland, primarily associated with Ulster Protestants. It has also got lodges in England, Scotland and the Republic of Ireland, as well as in parts of the Commonwealth nations and the United States. The Orange Order was formed by Ulster Protestants in County Armagh in 1795. That's here where I live. I pass these places when I go out on my bike with with these, these historical... Incidences took part, the Battle of the Diamond and all that. But anyway, during a period of Protestant Catholic sectarian conflict, as a a fraternity sworn to maintain the Protestant ascendancy in Ireland, an All Ireland, an All Island Grand Orange Lodge of Ireland was established in 1798. 
its name as a tribute to the Dutch-born Protestant King William of Orange, who defeated the Catholic King James II in the Williamite Jacobite War, 1688-1691. The order is best known for yearly marches, the biggest of which are held on or around the 12th of July, a public holiday in Northern Ireland. The Orange Order is a conservative British Unionist and Ulster Loyalist organisation. Thus, it has traditionally opposed Irish nationalism or stroke republicanism and campaigned against Scottish independence. The Order sees itself as defending Protestant civil and religious liberties, while critics accuse it of being sectarian, triumphalist and supremacist. And I would be one of those. It does not accept non-Protestants as members unless they convert and adhere to its principles, nor does it accept Protestants married to Catholics. Orange marches have marched through Catholic neighbourhoods, are controversial and have often led to violence, such as the Drum Cree conflict. Click that little link there from Wikipedia in a second. So, we'll get to the formation. So, we'll do the Drum Cree link here first. Have I got that one loaded in? I haven't. Two sacks. I just load that in. There it is. So, uh, where did it go? Ah, precious. This hasn't worked already. I'm letting you down a bucket full here, aren't I? Mm hmm. Sorry, give me two seconds. This is just going to. Oh, I've got that one. It says it's loaded. It doesn't say where. No. Ah, there it is. Got it. Sorry, sorry. Excuse me. Sorry, my mistake. The app was a little bit slow in loading in there. So, the Drum Cree thing. The Drum Cree conflict. The Drum... If you don't know what it is, again, this is just up the road from me. I, I go past this place all the time. The Drum Cree conflict, or standoff, is a dispute over yearly parades in the town of Portadown, Northern Ireland. The town is mainly Protestant and hosts numerous Protestant marches each summer, but has a significant Catholic minority. The Orange Order insists that it should be allowed to march its traditional route to and from Drumcree Church on the Sunday before the 12th of July. However, this route, uh, most of this route is through mainly Catholic Irish nationalist parts of town. The residents who see this march as sectarian, triumphalist and supremacist have sought to ban it from their area. The Orange Men say this is an attack on their traditions. They have marched the route since 1807, when the route was when the area was mostly farmland. So then they built the housing estate of Drumcree, uh, of uh, Gervahi out there, and those people that live there don't want to have triumphalist orange marches. Stuffed down their throat, and I don't blame them because that's what they are. So, where are we? Uh, yeah. So here is the history. Okay. Throughout, we're going right back to the 1780s here, and I'm going to read all of this. It's two, two. It's a two pages, two A4 pages. That's about the height of it. It's not that long, so stay with me. 
It's it's good. It's interesting. You might learn something, which is the point. The formation of the Orange Order, and this is from the O'Neill County Historical Society. Human star, Duke Duke Neil. No, not Duke. Duke. How do you pronounce that? Struggling with that one. So, throughout the 1780s, sectarian tensions had been building until boiling point in County Armagh. Here, a number of Protestants and Catholics in what was then Ireland's most populous county were of roughly equal number and competition between them to rent patches of land near markets was fierce. Dr. William Richardson stated in a a detailed analysis of the situation in 1797. And this is his quote. Much offence had lately been taken because the Catholics in general and in the general increase in wealth had raised the price of land by bidding high when it became vacant. This was the real cause of our ill humour, not the relaxation of property laws, but the pretense. And by 1780, so he's saying the Catholics who had been bidding, putting, putting the price of the land up, And he's saying it wasn't because of the relaxation of property laws. So around, you're talking about around the time, I'm trying to think now, just doing this off the top of my head. So the Act of Union between Great Britain and Ireland happened in 1800. 1798, Wolf Tone, the United Irishmen, Irish Republican Brotherhood, right? So 1798, this is, we're talking here, this is 1797. Rebellion is thick in the air. It's everywhere. If you look back on the history from, say, 1620, start to the plantation of Ulster, rebellion is happening all the time. And as British, the British dominance of Ireland and the, Gael, the Gaelic retraction and absorption conti- happens more and more and more, more and more rebellions are happening. There's a clearly... There's a resistance. It's and it's in our it's in our bones to, to resist this, right? So seventeen ninety-eight, this is going on in Armagh. Catholics there's land reform happening. Catholics couldn't own their own land. You could only be a tenant at that point. So a part of now it's it, it hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen. The Act of Union what it does is it absorbs Ireland into the United Kingdom, the forms of the United Kingdom. This happens in 1800-1801. And in that process, the Parliament, such as it was in Dublin, is basically... These people are basically absorbed into the British uh, Westminster in London. So they become... They're MPs. They become MPs in England. And... A part of the deal that's made is that there's a certain amount of Irish Catholic emancipation and a certain amount of rights given to Irish Catholics that they can own land, for example. If you can own land, you can... Well, I think it happens later on. It's not at this point, but you can vote that eventually. So that's what's going on here. So he's saying it wasn't because of the general increase in wealth had raised the price of land by bidding high. When it became vacant, the real cause was the relaxation of the property laws. 
was not the relaxation of the property laws, but the pretense. Yeah, I'm going to call bullshit on that. Um, but anyway, so there we go. So that's, I think that's kind of generally where we are. If I'm wrong, let me know. If I've got that wrong, please. I'm not a historian. So, we're going back a couple of years again. By 1786, drunken brawls in the Market Hill area of County Armagh between groups known as the Bond Fleet, the Bunker Hill Defenders and the Napak Fleet had become openly sectarian despite originating in a quarrel between two Presbyterians. They then, reorganize, they then reorganized as the Protestant People Day Boys and the Cath- versus the Catholic Defenders. So that was your two... Um, Sacks going at each other. That's what they organised as the People Day Boys and then the Catholic Defenders, right? The next decade in County Armagh was marked by a raging sectarian conflict between both groups. Lord Gosford, who was the governor of the area at the time, and Gosford Park is named after him, observed of the People Day Boys that they were a low set of fellows who, with guns and bayonets and other weapons, break open the houses of Roman Catholics, and as I'm informed, treat them with cruelty. Some Protestant gentry gave weapons to Catholics so that they could defend themselves. Soon, however, guns were also being given out to the Protestant boys to defend themselves from attacks by Catholics. So you're basically in an arms race at this point. The sectarian violence had soon spread to South Armagh, where Catholics were a majority and turned on the Protestants with a ferocity not seen for more than a century. The point of no return occurred in the, on the 28th of January 1791 when Catholics cut off the tongue and fingers of Mr. Barclay, a popular schoolmaster from Fork Hill, and his wife, Vile. And as the same hereditary enmities handed down from generation to generation, Raids to the fore, violence spread to neighbouring counties. Wow. In July 1795, a Reverend Divine held a sermon at Drum Cree Church, and this brings us back to the Drum Cree situation, right? To commemorate the Battle of the Boyne. In his History of Ireland, Volume 1, published in 1809, the historian Francis Plowden described the events that followed this sermon. Reverend Divine so worked up the minds of his audience that upon retiring from the service on the different roads leading to their respective homes, so that's these roads that are being dis- still under dispute to this day, the Drum Cree area, the Girvahi Road area, they gave full scope to the anti-papist Papistical, never heard that word before. Anti-papistical zeal with which he had inspired them, falling upon every Catholic they met, beating and bruising them without provocation or distinction, breaking the doors and windows of their houses, and actually murdering two unoffending Catholics in a bog. This unprovoked atrocity of the Protestants revived and redoubled religious rancor. The flame spread and threatened a contest. Sorry, mature is just sinking underneath me. A contest of extermination. The Battle of the Diamond. So this is the. Uh, this is where it all peaked. 
September 1785 at a crossroads known as the Diamond near Loch Gall. Defenders and people dare boys gathered to fight each other. This initial standoff ended without battle when the priest that accompanied the defenders persuaded them to seek a truce after the after a group called the Bleary Boys came from County Down to reinforce the People Day Boys. When a contingent of defenders from County Tyrone arrived on the 21st of September, however, they were determined to fight and the People Day Boys quickly regrouped and opened fire on the defenders. According to William Blacker, the battle was short and the defenders suffered not less than 30 deaths. After the battle had ended, the People Day Boys marched into Loch Gall and in the house of James Sloan they founded the Orange Order, which was to be a Protestant defence association made up of lodges. The principal pledge of these lodges was to defend the king and his heirs so long as he or they support the Protestant ascendancy. So that's Protestant supremacy. At the start of the Orange Order, at the start, the Orange Order was a parallel organisation to the Defenders in that it was a secret oath-bound society that used passwords and signs. Um, one of the few very landed gentry that joined the Orange Order at the outset, William Blacker, was ill-pleased at some of the outcomes of the Battle of the Diamond. He says that a determination was expressed to driving from this quarter of the county the entire of its Roman Catholic population with notices posted warning them to hell or Connacht. Other people were warned by notices not to inform on local orange men or I will blow your soul to the low hills of hell and burn the house you are in. Within two months, 7,000 Catholics had been driven out of County Armagh. According to Lord Gosford, the governor of Armagh, it is no secret that a persecution is now raging in this country. The only crime is profession of the Roman Catholic faith. Lawless banditti have constituted themselves judges and the sentence they have denounced is nothing less than a confiscation of all property and immediate banishment. Two former Grand Masters of the, of the Order, William Blacker and Robert Hugh Wallace, have questioned the statement saying... Whoever the governor believed were the lawless banditti, he could not, they could not have been orange men, as there were no lodges in existence at the time of his speech, according to historian Jim Smith. Later apologists rather implausibly deny any connection between the People Day Boys or the first orange men, or even less plausibly between the orange men and the mass wrecking of Catholic cottages in Armagh in the months following the diamond. All of them, however, acknowledged the movement's lower-class origins. The Order's three main founders were James Wilson, Daniel Winter, and James Sloan. I know, I know a James Wilson. <laughs> Great fella. Cyclist buddy of mine. The first Orange Lodge was established in nearby Dan County, Dian, County Tyrone, and its first Grand Master was James Sloan of Loch Gall. Its first ever marches were to celebrate the Battle of the Boyne that took place on 12th of July 1796 in Portadown, Lurgan and Warrenstown, which is exactly where I am right now, Lurgan. So that's that's the basic history, right? So 
Yeah. So to say that this is another one from Encyclopedia. To say that it's not, it's not a sectarian organisation. It clearly is. You know, I do find it interesting that the brawling and the initial violence that was taking place started between two Presbyterians, but spilled over into to become a sectarian. Uh, sectarian brawls in Market Hill which if you ask me should be fucking bulldozed um, and there's another history there this is um, I'm not going to read it It's there's a bit more detail um, you can read that if you want there's one uh there's, yeah, so I'll read this because this last paragraph of this one. Because it brings us up to the 1798. Uh, by 1798, rebellion greatly strengthened Orangeism's position in Ireland. The story of the rebellion is inextricably tied with the Society of United Irishmen, an organisation formed in Belfast in 1781, so it's Wolf Tone and all them boys to push for radical reform. Frustrated by the absence of meaningful reform and forced underground by increasing state pressure, the society abandoned reform for revolution as the 1790s progressed. Although United Irish leaders had called for a union of, of Irishmen of all creeds, the rebellion that broke out in 1798 took a nakedly sectarian appearance in Wexford and other locations. Orange men participated actively pulling down the revolt and committing a host of sectarian atrocities in Wexford in particular. But Orange's successes were largely overlooked in the aftermath of the rebellion by seemingly conforming, confirming the Orange men's view of Irish Catholics as untrustworthy rebels. The 1798... But that's despite the fact that Wolf Tone was Protestant. And the leaders of the Irish... The, the United Irishmen were all Protestants. So... Um, the 1798 rebellion accelerated the Orange Order's move to respectability and influence, and while members of the Order initially opposed the Act of Union in 1800, the Orange men quickly became its most fervent supporters, seeing a more formalised union with Britain as their best protection against Irish Catholics. The way, so there you go. Um, there was another little bit. Let me just see if I can find it here for you, because... There's was a couple of articles that specifically referenced how the Orange Order were used to stoke sectarian tensions. Is that no? It's not that one. Is it that one? Mm, oh God! I made a boo boo. Okay, so it's not there. I can't. I, I should have found that article for you. Uh, no, but basically, the orange were used at that point too, because the United Irishmen at that the, the, so the seventeen eighty eight rebellion was notable for many things, but one of them was that it was it was non sectarian. It was Protestants and Catholics. 
So um, the orange were used to, to create sectarian division between Catholics and Protestants. And that was a part of what happened. So then by the time you get the Act of Union in 1800, it goes across to England. Irish Catholics are... The deal was that they were going to get certain rights. By the time it goes to be... this is going to be signed by the king, they've decided, no, the king, the king himself, apparently, this says, there's no way we're going to give Irish Catholics these uh, these rights. And so by then, you've got, basically, you've got Catholics have got no rights and Protestants have all the rights. Notably, before that, Irish Presbyterians, because they weren't part of the official church, you know, the Church of Ireland, they had lesser rights than full Protestant rights, if you know what I mean. So there was a there, there, there was a there was a hierarchy. At the bottom of it were, were Irish Catholics. But then after that you'd Protestants, you'd Presbyterians. They didn't have the full rights of your full Protestant. So the orange were used to create that division and the Act of Union cemented it. So by the time it goes, uh, two, two years after 1788, you got the Act of Union, Protestants have got rights, Catholics don't, and the rest is history. So, to bring us up to date, we've got the Drum Creek, well, I read you that little bit about the Drum Creek conflict. Now, the thing that ended the Drum Creek conflict was of an absolute tragedy, and it was this. The killing of the Quinn brothers. Now, I'll read that. This is beyond, beyond tragic. That these wee boys, um, is that it came to this was is, is shocking. So as we know, uh, the Drum Creek standoff was happening every year, and. It had been decided that the Orange Order weren't allowed to march down through their Gavahi Road because it was stoking community tensions, which it, it was. And then this happened. Jason, Mark and Richard Quinn were three brothers killed by the Ulster Volunteer Force, the UVF, in a firebomb attack on their home in Balamoni, County Antrim. Crime was committed towards the end of the three-decade period known as the Troubles. One man, Gil- Garfield Gilmore, was found guilty of murdering the three brothers 15 months later and sentenced to life imprisonment. After admitting, he had driven three other men to the house to commit the fatal petrol bomb bombing. And although Gilmore named the three alleged killers, they were never charged due to lack of concrete evidence. I would say they weren't charged because they were paid by the there's collusion. They're paid. They're paid agents of the state. That's what's what. It always comes out in the wash. I don't know if it's true, but if it comes out, I'm not. I'm going to say, of course, it was. Whenever loyalists aren't jailed, go back and listen to my interview with Paddy Fox. The level of collusion going on between the loyalist paramilitaries and the British state is beyond belief. Um. So here's the background to the family. The Quinn family, consisting of Mother Chrissy and sons Jason, Mark and Richard, lived in the Kiernani estate in the predominantly Protestant town of Ballymoney. The family was a mixed religious background, 
Mother Cassie was Chrissy was a Roman Catholic from mixed background, and her the boy's father Jim Dillon was a Catholic. After separating from her husband, Chrissy raised the boys as Protestant to avoid the hassle. Chrissy lived with her Protestant partner Raymond Craig in a Kiernani, which had only a few Catholic residents and was mostly Protestant, reflecting the religious makeup of Balamoni itself. The boys, aged 9, 10 and 11, attended a local state school and in the evening before their deaths had been helping build the estate's 11th night loyalist bonfire. They were actually helping build the bonfire the night before. These boys were being raised Protestant. They were Protestants. The killings took place in the night at the height of the standoff over the Orange Order March in Drum Cree, which created tense atmosphere various towns across Northern Ireland. In Balamoney, the previous year, an off-duty RUC officer, Gregory Taylor, was beaten to death by a group of Loyalist bandsmen. The killing followed a row about the RUC's position after the Loyal Order marches had been banned from the nearby nationalist village of Dunloy. So you can see, just in that statement, the tentacles of the Orange and how deep they go through our society here in the north. And this is which leads me back to my original uh, comment. It's important that these organisations are kept to the fringes of our society, if not just let, just sort of disappear and die off eventually altogether. I certainly won't be sad to see them go. So, I'm going to finish with this and then we're going to move on to the next story about bricks. Um, Michaela McAravey was, if you don't know, again, I did a video on this. You can go back and did a podcast about this. You can go back and listen. Michaela McAravey was the daughter of Mickey Hart, Tyrone football manager, All-Ireland winning manager, current manager of life. Yeah, I think. Um, yeah. Quite a legend. And his daughter, Michaela, got married, and on her honeymoon, she got murdered. So, uh, this video, a few years ago, four years ago, I think it was, did the rounds on the social media. It was posted to, on, it was posted, uh, I think on Facebook originally, and it shows members of an Orange Lodge singing a horrible song. I don't even, I'm not even comfortable listening to it. It's actually that disgusting. But I'll let you have a listen. Check it out. Oh. So that's that. Now, uh, Joe Brawley at the time was. 
that we were, and the things, the bigger issues that we were able to talk about. Oh. That was all a no-go, you know, and that was shut down. And so what's the point in it then? You know, yeah. you're just a... Wrong video. It hasn't loaded in for me, so I'm not going to I'm not going to play that for you. Um, but I'll read this quick article, and it's from uh, Irish Central, and it is written by Nano Dowd, who is the founder of Irish Central, which is which is a good a good. Um, Publication, I like it. Lots of bits of Irish history and stuff, and it does go into a little bit of politics when it, stuff like this happens. I, I I like going to it for a little bit of mythology and all that sort of stuff. So this um, this originally was posted. This article was originally posted in it says at the bottom here. No. Anyway, it was originally posted a few years ago. It's been it was reposted since then. So I had to laugh at the sheer effrontery of the Orange Order leadership castigating a group of their own members, singing an absolutely vicious diatribe of a song besmirching the memory of Michaela McAravey. Um, I'll let you just, if you can stomach it, I read the article for you. She was a young Tyrone woman murdered on a honeymoon in January 2011 when she interrupted a robbery in her bedroom at the Legends Hotel in Mauritius. Michaela's death sent shockwaves far and wide. She was an extremely popular daughter of famed football coach Mickey Hart, who had led Tyrone to stunning All-Ireland victories. She was a school teacher, a committed anti-alcohol abuse campaigner, as well as her dad's biggest fan, attending every game with him. All of Ireland, North and South, mourned the shocking death of a young bride on what should have been the most wonderful week of her life. Not some folks in the Orange Order, though. They apparently composed a song mocking Michaela, and last week a video of a group of young Orange men showed them singing it. Their performance was Facebooked live. Avert your eyes if you wish, but here are the lyrics. She went to her room to get a wee treat, something, as in, the, as in they don't know what the word is, something strangers she did meet. They hammered and they hammered and they beat her down. John McAravey, her, her husband, never gave her a shout, round and round and up and down through the streets of Ballygolly Town. The words are hideous and beyond belief. And what is left unanswered is who wrote them and why were this, and when and where were they first sung. It is quite clear from the video lyrics that they're well known, and that's what's kind of striking, as well as the general overall hor um, horror show that's on display. You're looking at it and you're going, they all know these words. Who, I mean, is it? And that Orange Lodge is a really big one, and there's all different bands men in there. So the different bands men from different lodges are all singing this song. The shock and horror exhibited by the Orange leadership is as phony as a $3 bill, and thus singing it the thugs singing it were not the first to do so. It seems perfectly implausible. The song had been sung for years by orange men sitting in their citadels, burnishing their hatred for Catholics. It shows the deep ignorance and bigotry that still courses through hard-line unionism. 
The fact that the Orange Order leadership, who aid bet a dollar to a dime, had heard the song before, never put a stop to it or banned it from its halls tells you all you need to know. The singers who have since received death threats are now furiously apologising through a lawyer. They reiterated their complete shame and regret for their involvement in the incident. They insisted there was no intent to broadcast the chant on social media. It was incidentally streamed on Facebook Live, whatever that means. That is completely irrelevant. The fact that they were singing a hate-filled song with gusto was all you need to know. The self-pity in their statement and their attempt to deflect blame is ludicrous. There is, this is becoming a public witch hunt, inclusive of repeated de- repeated death threats, and there is a growing social media mob who appear to, to have lost all grip on reality. This statement added, it is now time to draw a line under this vile incident and allow any investigations to take their course. In event, regardless of whether broadcast or not, the relevant behaviour is not acceptable in any section of our society, public or hate. The police are investigating, but so is the Orange Order. I can't wait for the orange whitewash. Nile says. So, there you go. That's the orange for you. And that's... Uh, so, brings us from the beginning... Right up to now, and there's various. There, so there was a video went around the the, the 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 socials the other day of two orange bands actually fighting with each other, because one of them shouted at the, at the other, "We're no, we're more fucking loyal, we're more loyal, we're more fucking loyal to King Charles than you are." Two bands passed each other in a parade, so they start fighting with each other over that. There you go. Lovely bunch of lads. But anyway, we will move on. So we're going to do bricks. Right? Do you know what bricks is? Let me get a drink of water. You're going to have a little listen to the theme tune. Don't worry. We're not over yet. We've got more to come. More to come. I wanted to do that little thing on the orange because I don't do much on Northern Ireland politics. But for those of you that aren't from here, mightn't even know who the Orange Order are. And basically akin to fucking KKK in some instances. So, there we go. Bricks. What's bricks? Pull that down. Bricks is Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. It's an acronym. BRICS, B-R-I-C-S, and it is a trading organisation, like the Euro. And what they're proposing, and it's expected to be announced soon, is a BRICS trading currency. Now this is, I don't don't think anyway, this is going to be a currency that you want to get a note, a you know, you're not going to get notes, coins that you can spend. It's a trading currency. And it is going to put under threat the US dollar. The hedge of money that is the US dollar. Now, so the way it was explained, there's an African Union summit happening a few weeks ago. And the way it was explained by one of the leaders is... 
say Kenya wants to trade wheat with Nairobi, or, uh, Nigeria, right? Kenya has to change its currency, whatever that is, into US dollars to make the trade and vice versa. That's clearly ridiculous. And what that does is it underpins the American dollar. So the American the Americans just can just print as much of their own money as they want. <clears throat> and then they sell these things off as government bonds, they pay the interests and etc. etc. and so on and so forth. Which is Amer- which is why America is largely shielded from much of the excesses, except when it gets really bad, of global um economics. So here's a little video about it. Check about the currency. Check it out. This was on RT. I'm going to make sure the sound is on for you. Which it isn't. In contrast to the credit backed oh, US dollar, with countries lining up to join the growing initiative. The BRICS countries are planning to introduce a new trading currency which will be backed by gold. More and more countries recently expressed desire to join BRICS. The decision comes a month ahead of scheduled alliance summit in Johannesburg, South Africa. 41 countries have since shown their interest in BRICS membership and its new currency implementation. Russia's foreign ministry has stated that if African states show enthusiasm, the group's expansion may also be on a Russia-Africa summit's agenda in the end of July. As of now, the BRICS group remains comprised of Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa. Former statistician general of South Africa, Pali Lahola, says the gold bank currency will facilitate the advancement of developing countries. Avoiding using the gold standard, uh, we have gone for almost uh, 40, 45 years now since 1980 when this was dropped. Uh, and we have seen the consequences particularly of this uh, to the developing countries uh, when the dollar was uh, adopted as a, as a standard and gold not as such. Yet against that, uh, there's been accumulation of gold. Uh, in the developing world. South Africa had a much stronger currency when the gold standard was still in force. By going the the gold standard by many countries uh, that many African countries, of course, have, this will be of great benefit uh, to strengthening uh, the currency, uh, the single currency that is backed by gold. Uh, It will facilitate uh, development because after all, currency is um, the quantity of material things uh, that societies have. If you use another currency based on material wealth or material things you don't have, it means that uh, you are at the mercy of that of that country, and it's uh, and they will charge commissions and the like. The BRICS group is set to introduce a new currency. So there you go. What do you think of that? So there's a load of replies underneath. As you can expect, it's on Twitter. So, uh, it's obviously gets nasty underneath the uh, replies. But the problem is that America, the US, is going to do everything it can to disrupt this. 
which is fair. We understand that from a, you know, global hegemon, economics perspective. That's, you would expect it. But with America being the, 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 the reactionary baby that it is, it could get, you know, what does this mean? Does it mean, is it going to go to war? Is it going to do what? Now, what it will do, so much as in, 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 in that it can, it will conduct, it's basically siege warfare. And we're talking about sanctions. So because America is the hegemon, they use sanctions as a battering ram to get other countries to do what they want. Because if you want to buy A, B or C from country A, B or C, you have to do it through US dollars. America, being the controller of the dollar, can then unilaterally, by itself, choose to deny you access to product A, B or C from country A, B or C. That's what a sanction is. Now, siege warfare was made illegal. We, it's, it's against the law. You're not allowed to, to do siege warfare. I can't, don't know when that was decided, but it, but that's it's actually against the law. But siege warfare is sanctions by another name. Or sanctions is siege warfare by another name. So, look at the the, the blockade of Cuba and Iran and all. It's uh, Cuba specifically. Um, that's basically siege warfare, and it stunts the development. Of the, of, of the country that's being sieged. So, let's see, what have we got here? I've a few bookmarks for you. Just see which ones come up, which ones are good. There it is. I'm not going to read all of this because it's, some, it's pretty much some similar to what the lady said in the RT report. Talk of de-dollarization is in the air. Last month in New Delhi, Alexander Babakov, the deputy chairman of Russia's state Duma, which is their parliament, said that Russia is now spearheading the development of a new currency. It's to be used for cross-border trade between the BRICS nations. Weeks later in Beijing, Brazil President uh, Luiz Inacio Lula da Silva chimed in. Every night, he said, he asks himself why all countries have to base their trade on the dollar. These developments complicate the narrative that the dollar reign is stable. Because it is the one-eyed money in the land of the blind. That's a very awkward sentence. Individual competitors like the euro, yen and yuan, as one economist put it. Europe is a museum, Japan is a nursing home and China is a jail. He's not wrong, but a BRICS-issued currency would be different. It would be like a new union of up-and-coming discontents who, on the scale of GDP, now collectively outweigh not only the remaining, the reigning hegemon, the United States, but the entire G7 weight class put together. So all the countries that are looking to join this new currency, they already, they're um, out trade, their net worth, if you like, is greater than the G7. I've got a graph, I'll show you that in a second. Just, just uh, displaying that. Um, 
Foreign governments wanting to liberate themselves from reliance on the US dollar are threatening or, or anything but new. Murmurs in foreign capitals about the desire to dethrone the dollar have been making headlines since the 60s. But talk has yet to turn into results, etc., etc. Who famously was set against that? Muammar Gaddafi, president of Libya. He wanted an African currency, and that was probably the main reason as to why he was uh, overthrown. Um, yeah. So there's that. Let's see what else I've got here. A few links for you. Now, this is the one I wanted to read you. So this is from Zero Hedge. And this is by an author called Tyler Durden. I don't think it's the real Tyler Durden. Um, yeah, I'll read that. Look there. So... The gold standard is back. Bricks to introduce gold-backed reserve currency. I'll actually read the original because it's a bit tidier. Remember when the Russia-Ukraine war had just started? And this is where I'm going with this, by the way. So I'm tying this all in to the Russia-Ukraine. And this is going back to, in my map of events on the world that exists in my head, this all goes back to Afghanistan to 9-11 and the, Af the invasion of Afghanistan and then Iraq, 2003, the invasion of Iraq. Right? It all changed. Everything changed and it's going back. And what the global hegemon displayed to even... to, to any partner is that we will crush you on a whim if we decide so. So, let's just get back to this. Uh, so Tyler Durden writes, Remember when the Russia-Ukraine war had just started and I predicted that the Russia, Russia and China would launch their own gold-backed currency. At the time, this idea sounded completely foreign and I was ridiculed for bringing it up. Today, it became reality. 41-plus countries look like they could be returning to a gold standard. And there's a tweet just... Um, illustrating that further the images plastered all over the RT this weekend had headlines like new money, new world and the gold standard will be of great benefit to, to strengthening new singly currency the official announcement is expected to be made during the BRICS summit in August in South Africa Kitco reported over the weekend at first glance a new transaction unit Backed by gold sounds like good money and it could be first and foremost a major challenge to the US dollar's hegemony. He continued, for making the new currency as good as gold, a truly sound currency it must be convertible into gold on demand. I'm not sure whether this is what Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa have in mind, using gold as money. The unit of account would be a true game changer. No doubt about it. It could lead to a sharp devaluation of many fiat currencies vis-a-vis -vis the yellow metal, including the BRICS V2. 
fiat currencies. And it could catapult up goods prices in terms of fiat currencies. It could be a shock to the global fiat money system. I'm not sure that this is what BRICS wish to achieve. The official announcement of the new currency is expected in August during the BRICS summit in South Africa. Even more shocking than the announcement is the cavalier attitude that the US Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen appears to be taking to the news. In statements I can only describe as completely delusional, Yellen said this weekend, I want to reiterate what I've said in the past, which is that I think the United States can rest assured that the dollar is going to play a dominant role in facilitating international transactions and serving as a reserve currency in the years ahead. I don't see that role being threatened by any development, including the one you've been one you've mentioned, the BRICS. That's one she's going to want to take back at some point, I'm certain. Meanwhile, this announcement from BRICS is a key waypoint in a larger map of dethroning the US dollar as the world's global reserve currency. Not only does it solidify what we already know, that gold is real money, but it is also the most pronounced public challenge to the US dollar on a global stage in recent memory. It's also a serious waypoint in the much larger map of US de-dollarization that I laid out in full two months ago. And there it goes. So, <clears throat> last little bit of this. In, a must, in that must-listen interview, my friend Andy Shackman told me, when you look at countries that have expressed interest in joining BRICS, they have substantial gold holdings. The numbers are increasing among those who want to join. There's over 60 countries. They've lined up in a queue to join BRICS. The next thing I'll be looking at will be for cooperation from the Saudis, who, because of their dominance in oil markets, can help affect the chains necessary to grow this new currency. He continued, I do believe it'll be a Sunday night OPEC, the BRICS nation, Saudi Arabia, They'll come out and say on a Sunday night, we're taking another currency for oil and everything blows up Monday morning. It's a tsunami of dollars. And he concluded, the pieces are being put into place right now. Nobody is going to have the time to react. Wow. Why the hell would central banks be buying more gold than ever? They're front running. They don't care about the technicals. They're using the Western suppression of gold prices to de-dollarize. What does that look like when the world completely sheds dollars because they have no longer a need? They no longer need them to buy oil. Unless we forget simple common sense. I've argued for de-dollarization not because I'm unpatriotic or I want bad things to happen to the US. Just the opposite. Simply because the case becomes common sense when examining how we have abused the dollar's reserve currency status. Most recently, weaponizing our currency as a result of the Russia-Ukraine war. When a gold-backed currency makes its way onto the global trade stage, it'll be taken seriously because the rest of the world will have the same common sense realization that we already have. And this is why I believe that no matter what skepticism you may hear from dollar bulls, the wheels are already in motion. For a list of what I own and how I'm personally positioning myself, check out my portfolio review released just a few days ago. The post is public, so feel free to share it. I'm going to click that link. 
see what comes up. Oh, paid subscribers. Okay. So there you go. Isn't that interesting? What do you think of that? So there's another little bit on this. I wanted to see if... Mm. So, yeah. So just, just to finish up on this, Bricks, and this is... This is where right where we are. So you can see here. Oh yeah, I got this case video. So we'll I'll play it. Or have I? <gasps> no, I haven't. Let me. I'll just load it in for you though. I'll get this video and play it for you, if you would like, and I would like. And this is the point that th there's a rush to de-dollarize and there's a rush across the world to get this BRICS currency up and running sorry I have to do all these things to load this in um, and, the, and the reason is because the US has annoyed everyone the US has been annoying everyone for years but now the BRICS Thing. We're now a credit-based economy. In other words, we print fake money the bricks thing and we spread it throughout the is, world. Presents itself as but an the opportunity rest of the world to is actually producing the food, the gold, the soul. So, here's this video, and he's explaining what the bricks could be. What America it is. has pissed off the rest of the world. We've been the bully with this thing. We're now a credit-based economy. In other words, we print fake money and we spread it throughout the world. But the rest of the world is actually producing the food, the gold, the silver, the machinery, and all this. So finally, the rest of the world said, enough's enough. Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. That was the original BRICS. And now they're gaining force. It's not just Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. You have uh, well over a dozen countries that have already applied such as Algeria and Argentina and Iran, the United Arab Emirates, Nicaragua, Turkey, Indonesia, Senegal, Nigeria, Afghanistan, Egypt, Kazakhstan, and the biggest one of all, Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia. Uh, has formally applied to the BRICS nations. Kazakhstan, Indonesia, Thailand, all of these countries and their neighbors that are, are growing together are forming a massive, massive, very imposing, not only from a GDP, but you put all these countries together and their military might is very, very strong as well. And those are the BRICS plus. Now they're talking about adding more countries, including Costa Rica, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, Panama, Bolivia, Chile, Cuba, Ecuador, Peru, Uruguay, Venezuela, Azerbaijan, Mongolia, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, and Vietnam, the list goes on and on. So the rest of the world is saying, enough of you sending us your toilet paper. We, That's you, exactly oh, right. You take our uh, materials, you take our production, you take this, and you send us this trash here. So, that's quite ominous, wouldn't you say? And the, I don't know if this is going to work. Obviously, I don't know shit. But the fact that it presents itself as a, a serious opportunity, an attempt 
to de-dollarize and to pull yourself away from the un, your untrustworthy partner. And that's what it is. We have a saying here in Ireland, perfidious Albion. It basically means you don't never trust the English. For sound historical reasons, we believe that. It's exactly the same with America for the for for most of the countries that gay was less than there. Why would any country in America, if they have an opportunity to decouple itself from, from the US, why would they not? They'd be foolish not to. So here's some replies. Actually, I'm not going to read those. You can go and you can do all this yourself, which I know you will. Um, I'll turn that off. And so now this brings me right up to now. This is this article here, and this is an example of. The biggest story in the world, I believe that the biggest story in the world at the minute, there's, there's three. The Russia-Ukraine conflict, the heightened tensions between, that's been stoked between China and the Taiwan thing, by again by the US, and the, this BRICS currency. And you always hear me say on this podcast, when the end comes, the end comes fast. And this is an example of it. So, here's a brief rundown of 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 where of the thing between Russia, Ukraine, and the United States, right? And why other people, other countries are looking at this and going, "I want to join BRICS." If you're looking at this like this, you're clearly thinking like that. So. Putin mistakenly led himself to believe that the United States and NATO members were, were run by reasonable governments willingly willing to cooperate with Russia for mutual benefit to become economic and security partners, so to speak. What Putin learned instead is that the US and NATO never wanted any never had any intentions of being friendly partners with Russia, and what they wanted was an obedient, controllable puppet like Yeltsin to enable them to loot and the country clean. Russia is a target. Something to exploit and conquer a land of fabulous wealth which, with a huge supply of meat for multinational corporations, corporate parasites and their shareholders. Washington psychopaths plan to achieve the capture of the Soviet, the sovereign Russian state by throwing support behind the violent and hateful na- naz- Nazio I don't know what nationalist movement and Nazi nationalist movement in Ukraine. Sorry, it's like nationalist, but with a Z instead of an S. So it's obviously referencing the the the, the dreaded uh, Nazis. The movement is a continuation of something the U.S. kept simmering underground since the 1950s, an intergenerational fifth column of Bandera worshipping proto Nazis. This is SOP for the United States, SOP for the United States, sowing conflict among Russia's neighbors, throwing support behind its enemies, keeping border bushfires constantly burning and bleeding the state. Chechnya and Georgia, Georgia are previous examples of conflicts fueled by the US. 
That was the psychopath Newland's job at the Victorian Newland. To throw billions of dollars in financial support behind the far-right nationalists groups in Ukraine while masquerading them as pro-West, pro-EU revolution. Grow the numbers, give them the NATO trainers and resources, arm them to the teeth and then sit back and watch them do what comes naturally to violent, hateful Nazis. For lack of a better term, Ukraine, Ukraine was Newlandized. Now, you could, now you, that's Ukraine. You could swap that out for any one of a dozen countries in South America, dozen countries in Africa, various countries in the Middle East, various sections of the Middle East. It's the same playbook. I've been doing this since Afghanistan, fighting these proxy wars. No, well, since the 50s, obviously, according to this article. In the eyes of the Washington psychopaths, this was the ideal solution to capturing the Russian state. Not a single American or NATO life would need to be risked. Only expendable Ukrainians and mercs would do the dying. A classic proxy force with which to breed and provoke conflict, ultimately to procure Russian aggression. The mistake the US and NATO made was not understanding how strong Russia actually is. That it has it has all the capacity it needs to defend its strategic interests. There is no solution to preserving Russian sovereignty that does not involve obliterating every last nationalist in Ukraine. Any NATO forces that make the mistake of getting drawn into Ukraine will also have to be destroyed. Russia can do it. It has the resources, the personnel and the industries and the allies to produce virtually limitless quantities of arms and supplies. The Washington psychopaths truly believe they can bleed Russia out, but all they are succeeding in doing is bleeding Ukraine and NATO out. Guaranteed, the Washington psychopaths are just aver- are just aver- avaricious, and de- avaricious and desperate enough to keep feeding an unwinnable attempt to overthrow the Russian state. Russians have never been more unified behind a cause. The US and its tugboat UK will keep escalating any way they can, pushing and prodding member states to cough up until there is no room left to escalate. Ultimately, there will be no payoff for the US and the vassals, other than a few short-lived orgy of conflict capitalism, with which to enrich a few wealthy shareholders in the military-industrial-congressional complex. Now, and that, and there's a little diagram on the screen, you can see it there. That is an example. If you take from the moment that Russia invaded Ukraine to now, which is almost a year and a half, in February last year, you look at how fast all this is happening. We've escalated from not sending tanks and F-16s and all this sort to now we're sending those things. And they're just getting fucking destroyed. They're getting turned into ash, as Vladimir Putin said. The, 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 the Western military-industrial complex is not about building superior weaponry. It's just about selling. And it's selling crap around the world. These tanks are junk. The Patriot missile systems are junk. Everywhere they turn up, the Patriot battery missile systems were getting destroyed by rebels in in Yemen and 
in Syria. Boys driving Toyota trucks wearing flip-flops. So, it's as this person put it, uh, there will be no payoff for the US and the vassals other than a short-lived orgy of conflict capitalism. And that's what it is. And the rest of the world is now looking at it. This BRICS alternative is rising up as an alternative to get out from underneath US hegemon because the US will put drop sanctions on your ass as quick as look at you. They're going, no, we've got gold. These, these African countries, they've got gold. As the commentator put a moment ago, all the things that are made and produced are made by them. They've got the gold and the minerals and the wealth and the food and everything. They've got it all. And in return for it, they get toilet paper, the dollar. So this is an alternative to that. And this is, if it happens, and I don't, I don't know if it's a good thing to happen. I don't know what the fuck do I know. I'm just showing you. And this is the final word. Robert Kiyosaki on the rise of bricks. America has pissed off the rest of the world. Well, I showed you that one, Robert Kiyosaki. Richard, um, America's pissed off the rest of the world. We've been bullying with the dollar. The rest of the world is actually producing food, gold, silver, and machinery. So finally, the rest of the world has said, enough is enough. And that's it. We're done. What do you think? bricks interesting isn't it very interesting i don't know i don't know what's going to happen might be a good thing might be a bad thing make it worse before it gets better but don't ignore it it is happening india has said since that they're not interested they're kind of the weak link i've heard i've seen them described as that in the bricks brac they're the a BRICS countries, they're the weak link. But we'll see. We'll see. So there we go. That's the that's the episode. That's the podcast. That's a video. Head over to Twitter, Instagram, Patreon. I have a Patreon for a pound a month, one tier. And you get everything. There's a couple of extra I put up a couple of bonus episodes, a couple of bonus things there last week. Kinda make up for not being around for a few weeks because I was away with the band heading away with the band again on Thursday back to Germany it's for a weekend playing a festival um, it's going to be great check it out Right Oak Fest very good great festival great lineup. Um, yeah so there we go like, share, subscribe everybody hope you enjoyed and I'll catch you on the next one